Welcome to the Josh Bolton Show, where we dive into interesting and inspiring conversations. And now, your host, Josh Bolton. So how's your Friday going so far? No, no complaints from me. How about you? Same. Yeah, uh, no complaints. I just, um, I'm at home today. My neighbor just had her uh, landscaper show up with leaf blowers. So that's the background. I apologize. It's just, just started like the last there's 60 seconds. So <laughs> I have a pretty good noise gate on this. And then when I edit, I also can get a lot of background noise off too. Okay. Just wanted to give you the heads up. All right. Um, so just before we hit the record button and actually go like right into it, you wanted to talk about real estate, continuous improvement strategies and logistics and problem solving. Yeah, I know that's a lot of buzzwordy type stuff. So if you have any questions or want me to specify or want to talk about that, just let me know. I was more curious about the strategy and the logistics part. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, specifically, you know, my coaching platform is Accomplished RE. And what we focus on is maximizing individual realtors, uh, real estate agents, their business plans. We look at both their strategy and their logistics. When you hear those words, like, well, what does that mean? You know, we look at what is their kind of long-term goals, what is their plan, their strategy, and then the logistics are how do they actually get there? So putting in systems, putting in process, putting in uh, detailed plans to get them to their to their end set, their end line, their finished finished product. So what I found working in real estate is that on the deal side, the brokerage side, salesmanship is very good, but the business operation or the customer client experience piece can often sometimes be overlooked and be lacking. So we focus on that as far as uh, strategy and logistics to keep in mind who the client is, what they're looking for, and to deliver on the expectations that were set at the beginning of the transaction. Okay. So it would be more when people think of logistics, they're thinking like trucks. It's the actual encompassing of everything. Like from the customer to the, the contractors to you, the building itself, right? It can be. And just a kind of a simpler way to think about it. It's like, well, we've got great strategy. And what's that? It's like, well, we'll deliver a great client experience. Okay. That's a good strategy. Yeah. The logistics piece would be every Tuesday at 10 o'clock, we're going to have a call to check in to make sure the things that we said were going to happen are happening. Friday afternoon, we're going to make sure that uh, next week's uh, closing that's scheduled for Wednesday is still on online. We had three things that we're going to take care of. So we're going to make sure that those things are taken care of. So it is kind of the big picture and then the small incremental pieces that also make that up. So then I'm trying to think of how that like with real estate. So you, you're, you're going for the teaching everyone the encompassing of pretty much proper customer service when it comes to both an item and a service, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Not necessarily the item. Uh, I don't. What do you mean by that? When you uh, say? I would think the real estate itself, the actual property, is the item. Okay. And they, they have, um, and the service is them um, using it. I got it. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. Cool. Um. Actually, I just like to run it. Is that uh? This is uh your wow. For some reason, words hurt today. How do I say your last name? Salitro. Salitro. I would have butchered that real good. Um, so it's Mike Salitro. Okay. Um, then yeah, we're just let's go right into it. Um, give uh, the audience a, a nice background of yourself, Mike. Hi, yeah, I'm Mike Salitro. I uh, work in real estate. I have the uh, 
opportunity to wear a few different hats. I'm an attorney. I work on the brokerage side, and I also have a uh, coaching and consulting practice, Accomplished RE, which uh, allows me to work with uh, professionals here on Cape Cod, where I'm located, and really throughout the country. Interesting. I did not know about the attorney part about you. So are you, what specifically of uh, attorney work do you do? Mostly real estate law. So a lot okay. of contracts, closings, and uh, things like that. The, the really fun stuff everyone wants to do. <laughs> you know, you joke, but it is the fun stuff because you've got uh, parties who are happy to get to the closing table most of the time. So they are not fighting with each other. They're not arguing. They're not making each other's life difficult for the most part. So uh, it is uh, it is work that I enjoy. So actually, I want to say out of all the law practices, yours are probably not the easiest, but easier than most. It's easier in the fact that there is often collaboration between the uh, the parties. We're not, uh, you know, looking to uh, to always win or get the most out of the other side. So yeah, it can be easy at times, but uh, there there are obstacles that come up for sure. Well, yeah, anytime you deal with law and people, it just gets messy in general. Um, yes, it can. <laughs> uh, so the real estate aspect, being that you're a real estate uh, lawyer, what are what are just some tips and tricks? Um, because you are definitely in a different position than I am. So you see things probably more pronounced before they happen. What are some things maybe guy like me, still in the rat race, trying to save up uh, to eventually get to a point like you where we're just managing our assets? Yeah, and there's 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 a lot to, to go with there. But the things that I kind of talk with my clients about is kind of understanding what their objective in the specific real estate transaction is, and then how that uh, relates to their portfolio as a whole. So right now, uh, throughout the country and really, uh, you know, where I am specifically, it's people say, oh, it's a seller's market. There's low inventory prices are on the high side and it's difficult to get into a property. So that's, that's true. So you have to keep that in mind, but if your objective is to obtain a, an investment or a second home, and you need you know XYZ to make that investment work for you, you can't deviate from the XYZ just because you need to close the deal now and because the market factors are not in your favor. So kind of understanding what the purpose of this transaction is, how it fits into your larger portfolio is always important. And then kind of the other piece of it is, is leverage in the market. So what is your leverage both in the market and in this particular transaction? What can you bring as a buyer or seller that makes you unique to this uh, to this deal that will make you attractive as a buyer or seller to the other party? So keeping that in mind, front and center is important. Um, somebody, you know, to answer your question directly, somebody who's starting off, it's important. It's important to understand that real estate for. Uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, is hyper local. That you need to know what's going on next door, down the street. Why that piece of property, residential, commercial? Why it might exist? What what its value is, both to you living there, you as an investor, you as somebody who may want to sell that down the line. So understanding what's around it, what's uh, you know, what your objectives are in in getting into the real estate market. And that's a kind of a long winded answer, but there's uh, there's, there's a lot of though. things to consider. Okay, thank you. Um, I was just say your your comment of the hyper focus. That's the biggest thing I've been realizing as the other real estate guys come on. They're like, you pretty much like learn your city. If you really want to push it, the local three. They're like, just know everything that's happening and invest in there. I'm like, that's where I jokingly told them, like, I live in a more expensive area even before like this, um, all this bond money printing stuff. So now it's like a guy like me will never get like a million dollar loan kind of thing. But that's what they're saying. Just focus on your local area, like you just said. 
it can. It's it's your kind of wild card. It's something that you can have that others can't because you know exactly what's happening in the neighborhoods in the we call them villages here on Cape Cod. So it's it's it, it can differ once you make two right turns. So knowing that you know there's a beach around the corner, or knowing that you know there's a, a place that uh, kids can go play, and if you have families, that this might be a, an area to target. So just having that ability to be kind of the boots on the ground because information is everywhere now using the, the internet, using, you know, networking, you can kind of find out a little bit about everything pretty easily, but being an expert in a very specific area or specific topic is still, and will always be valuable. So is that, I'm going to say like a average Joe who works, maybe like a, a warehouse job who's studying and knows his local area, it's still one of those he might want to form like a, an LLC, like an SPE to get people to fund in so they can get the, the SPE could get the loan from a, a bank. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a strategy that, that can be helpful. Um, you know, there's, you know, we don't need to get into kind of specifics as far as what makes sense for, for legal protections, but when you're, especially buying property that others are going to be occupying. So if you're buying it with the intention of, uh, investment side and they have uh, renters or you know short short term vacation rental type thing you definitely want to explore those legal protections whether uh, it's an llc whether it's owning the property and trust to kind of put that uh, level of protection in place it does uh, impact the way that you finance the property or can so you want to explore that uh, but really when when purchasing you kind of want to Again, keep in mind what the purpose is, what you're looking to maximize as far as as the ownership of the property. And if it is that investment piece, there are plenty of ways to put a level of uh, protection in place from, from you, from financial situations, from bad tenants and things of that sort. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the biggest thing I've noticed in general. It's even if it's a little overkill, it's better to have some sort of protection than no protection at all. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to do it. That's, that's, that's kind of the big thing is to kind of understand what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. So then what do you specifically help your clients with? Is it residential, commercial, um, uh, warehousing, et cetera? Yeah, I've, I've had over the last 15 years, I've had the uh, pleasure, we'll say, of working in residential, commercial, industrial, all types of properties. So I understand, um, again, the relationship between each, the differences between what it's like walking into a transaction uh, for residential versus commercial. So right now, my focus is specifically on residential in the um, both brokerage and law practice that I have. So that's the type of clients that I work with, and that's kind of where my specialty is. The benefit of being both an attorney and a broker is I get to see the transaction from A to Z. So I understand what the client's looking for from when they first uh, log into Zillow to see what's available to when they leave that closing table, what what their uh, expectations are. So I can see that, and being in the residential market uh, where I am, it's... Um, it's important because a lot of um, a lot of activity here, and there's a lot of different uh, types of homeowners looking to uh, you know for kind of different reasons moving moving to the Cape. Okay, so then yeah, definitely because you are the attorney and broker with your accomplished RE, you you definitely see all aspects. So is it because of the the current trend of, uh, of people trying to leave to make like the suburbs to the city is why you more residential, or is it just less 
headaches and red tape uh, on the broker side? That's a good question. Um, the majority of properties on Cape Cod are residential. So you do see both more action in the uh, residential brokerage as well as there are more of us here. So that that's part of it. The other part is uh, you need to be really specialized to be in commercial. I don't want to say that's just, you know, it is a full-time role. So for someone like me who likes to do different things, uh, be on the brokerage and the uh, the attorney side, it it's more conducive to focus on residential property because it's something I've spent more time on and have more expertise in. The other thing that I can do is leverage my relationships with commercial brokers so I can introduce them to um, potential buyers, to sellers, and to have that uh, that dialogue when it comes up. I, you know, I know the things that I can and can, can do well and the things that I can introduce others to can do better than I can. So that's that's why I focus on residential and you know, commercial is its own specialty. Yeah, that that is definitely true. And it's a very um, big pocket game too. Absolutely. Yes, it can be. Um, so are you specifically a broker for Cape Cod or let's say out here in California, I give you a holler and be like, hey, I got this property. Can you help me out kind of thing? Yeah, that's um, that goes back to kind of what we talked about being being local. Uh, so the transactions that I work with are here on Mass- in Massachusetts for the that's where I'm licensed and Cape Cod is where the vast majority of my activity takes place. Cause that's where I am. That's what I know. That's, that's what I do. Um, but both personally, I've got a network that spans, spans the country as well as the, I work with Kindling Grove real estate. We've got a, uh, they have relationships with brokerages throughout the country. So uh, there are, uh, you know, experts all around that, uh, that we work with that we're happy to introduce our clients and their friends and family to. So let's just say the hypothetical, I found a piece of property, but I needed a broker. And if I give you a call and you referred me someone to someone, would I, I indirectly get a small nominal fee or just be a kickback from them? Uh, generally, the way uh, the referrals would work, uh, if there is... Like the, for example, with my my brokerage, there's a established network. So if if there is an introduction to a, a broker in California, there would be a, an agreement between the brokerages that uh, the referring party would be entitled to um, once a deal closed to to a referral. Um, sometimes it's more of a um, informal uh, practice where it's you know I, I, this this person asked me a question I, I don't have an answer or I don't work in their market I know you're an expert or you're there locally can you help them out and then there's that kind of collaboration you know down the line so usually there's kind of a formal agreement up front uh, but there can be the uh, just kind of the introduction piece and that uh, that kind of thing reciprocates itself going forward usually right just a gentleman's agreement and keep go about your way. Yeah, that's why it's important to work with people that you know, trust, and uh, you know will do a good job. And that if you have those informal agreements, that uh, you don't have to worry about uh, the client being taken advantage of, or that if there is some sort of agreement that it's it's lived up to by uh, all parties involved. Okay, um, I want to say, being a lawyer, you would know this. So, even if let's say you and me make a an informal uh, gentleman's agreement. Uh, is that one of those, let's say, for some reason, I feel, heaven forbid, but you screwed me. And it's like, there's no way to really, you could sue all you want, but there's nothing, no evidence, right? Well, uh, that's that's a pretty loaded question. Sorry. Uh, you know, I, 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 no, that's okay. I start with the premise that 
anybody can sue anybody over anything. And that's really that's our true. starting point that it does not take much to get into a lawsuit, uh, which is the unfortunate truth. The chances of winning or, you know, being victorious or seeing if somebody is not interested in paying you, um, they're not interested in paying you. So you've got a few remedies, a few methods to try to, to change that. But the, uh, you know, agreement up front, the dialogue, the understanding of this is what we have as far as expectations for each other when the deal is complete, this is what's going to happen. So having the best possible understanding, having that in writing, having that formalized, having that, uh, you know, be clear is is the best thing you can do. That's not always the case. And sometimes you'll find yourself that, hey, you said you were going to do this thing. You didn't. And then, you know, there are legal remedies, whether or not they are successful or they are financially viable. That's a different question. But um, you in that deal, you want to work with people that you know and trust. If, you know, there's two schools of thought that you put everything onto paper, that there's contracts for everything to make sure that situation doesn't happen or you you know work on handshakes that you do what you say you're going to do so that when the shoe is on the other foot that the person you're working with will do the same so it's it's kind of whatever you're most comfortable with interesting i would think nowadays especially with the more um freelance and gig economy that the good faith approach to things would be slowly dying because you you would want everything in, uh, like a writing and signed um, you know, I would actually I disagree with you on that. I think that in kind of a gig economy where you are constantly uh, collabor- new collaborations, new clients, new deals, that you need to have earned and develop a level of trust to make things work. And if your trust is simply we both sign this piece of paper, um, I don't know how great that collaboration is going to be. I'm actually reading a, a good book now or just finished a talk by, uh, uh, I think, Stephen R. Covey about the speed of trust, that when you have the trust established between two parties, you speed up both time and money. Uh, You speed up the time and you reduce the money it takes to get there. So let's say, for example, we're looking at collaborating and we want to hammer out some sort of agreement. It takes us six weeks to agree to the terms of that agreement. We both have lawyers looking at it. It costs us this amount of money. Whereas if we go in with the mutual trust, mutual respect, understand here's the guidelines that we're going to work with informal, we get those hammered out in 30 minutes. We start working today. We've got six weeks where we can work. We don't have those legal fees. We have that understanding. You're hiring me for my expertise. You trust me. I'm hiring you because you've given me the situation that that I can help you with. And we work off that mutual trust. If that's not there, you probably don't want to collaborate. You can spend the six weeks, but when you're in this gig um, you know, side economy that it may not be uh, financially sound to have a formal agreement on everything you do that you're going to need to both establish trust and extend trust to make make things work so then that that does play also to the strategy and logistics we were talking about earlier where it is easier um not not necessarily safer but easier to do the um gentleman's agreement to go ahead with the okay you're going to help me with the customer i'll do this I'll, i'll get a guy to repair the roof kind of thing yeah. And, you know, every, again, I don't want to dodge your question, but every, every situation is unique. You need to know the parties involved, know what the expectations are and understand that things are going to change. You know, we can plan all we want for tomorrow, next week. 
Um, but if we've learned anything over the last you know, 12, 15 months, is that things are going to happen that we don't know about or that we can possibly, we have no idea that are, are going to come up. So we can have a blueprint in place that'll kind of give us rules for how we should react when those, when those things come up. But we can't plan for every uh, contingency. We can't plan for everything that's going to go wrong. So knowing who we're who we're working with and what the uh, you know again the expectations for each side are of equal importance is having that uh, you know two page contract, ten page contract, whatever it is. Right. Which, like you were saying earlier about the whole like year year and a half of this lockdowns and no one could plan for it. It really played into the problem solving mindset of everything from entrepreneurs to real estate to guys like you. Yeah, um, unfortunately, problems have been around before and will continue to 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 come up in business and, and personal life. It's how how you can solve them if you've got a way to adapt and move forward. So one of the things that I focus in a lot with my uh, coaching clientele is the idea of continuous improvement. What that is is kind of identifying things that are not working well and saying, how can we make this better? And it's not about, all right, we must solve this at this time. And this is our final uh, solution that we're going to incrementally make things better and never stop doing it. There's no finish line for solving that problem. We're going to put a solution in place. We're going to continually make it better. I'm going to check to make sure that if there's any unintended consequences, it's not affecting other areas of our business. So always looking to have that kind of that, that approach to get better versus, all right, this is the best it's going to be. We're just going to forget about it until the problem, you know, rears its ugly head again down the line that we're always keeping it in mind and uh, making sure that there's not those uh, unintended consequences. So you were mentioning it, but didn't actually say it. Would you say for the continuous improvement, would it be like a checklist, a to-do list where you, you grade it like the top is the best, the bottom is like, it's important, but we can wait till like a couple of weeks from now kind of thing, or more of a, a mindset, like a, a meditation and calming yourself, or is it a corporation yeah, involved? It's, it's a really good question because it's kind of all of those things. With continuous improvement, it is, it's a mindset. It's how can I move things to uh, to a better place. So it's both spotting and solving problems and it's also identifying, hey, this thing is working well. Is it something I can make? Can I do this more efficiently? Can I do this at a lower cost? Can I do this quicker? Uh, so that's your mindset is always looking for ways to improve things. Um, you know, it's by definition, being the best, there's one person who is the best. There's one thing that is the best. It's really hard to be the best. But if mm -hmm. your mindset is, I just want to keep incrementally getting better, that's attainable, something you can do and something you never stop. There's no finish line. Uh, so that's the mindset approach of it. And then the, the list part you bring up is interesting because you need to prioritize. Most people in their personal, in their business life, they have more problems than they can solve. So you need yeah. to identify, all right, what is going to be, give me the kind of biggest bang for my buck and knowing that, all right, this is the kind of work that it's going to take to solve. And this is the kind of impact it's going to have if I solve it or put some sort of solution in place. So being able to prioritize is, um, you know, a super important because if you start putting in the time for things that are not going to give you the impact that you need or want, or, uh, kind of justify your time, then, you know, you're forget about being efficient. You're now you're just, just kind of wasting uh, time and energy. Yeah. So then what would you say for someone who, like you, you said, could have like a hundred problems on their plate and needs the more efficient route? What would you say and from your perspective as the attorney, but also the mindset kind of person is um, go through, di digest, et cetera, and whatever spin you need to add? 
Yeah, this is actually a uh, an activity I do with my coaching clients, and I've got uh, on my website accomplishedre.com. We've got a tool. It's called the Move the Needle Matrix. And what we do is just look at two categories: effort and impact. So the idea is to come to, with a list of five problems, objectives, uh, business initiatives, whatever whatever you want to classify them as. And then look at the first you look at, this is the effort level that it's going to take me to accomplish that initiative and just score it a one or two. So I've got a list of, let's say, the five problems I want to work on. And I'm going to say, all right, the effort level will be one for easy or two for difficult, just a one or two. I then then look at the same initiatives and I give it a one or two score for the impact it will have if I properly implement that initiative and it goes well. Then it gets plotted. What can I get the most, again, bang for my buck? What will be the one effort, but two impact that, you know, this is not going to be too much work, but the impact would be really great. Uh, So an example for, for, for real estate, Um, let's say your business initiative is to engage 10, 10 new clients uh, in the next quarter. And I can do that by um, hosting a, a weekly uh, video where people can call in, ask their questions, and I can give information on uh, buying a house. Because I know there's a lot of people interested in buying in my market. And if I have uh, a show where they can ask me questions, I can uh, drum up new business. So I host that show. Effort, you know, it's easy for me. I can do that. It takes 30, 45 minutes of my time. I have the answers. There's not a lot of research that goes into it. The impact, I'm going to have, let's say, hundreds of people over 10, 12 weeks join the show that are going to hear me talk that I may not have seen before. So that's something I want to put into place because the effort is not too, too, it's not too heavy lifting for me and the impact it can have on my business is great. Um, so when sometimes, you know, and it sounds simple when I say the you know, effort versus impact, but when you put it down to paper and you look at it, it's like, all right, these are the five things I want to do. All right, three through five, that's going to be pretty, pretty heavy effort, pretty hard to do. So I'm going to put those either on the back on the back burner, or I want to see what the impact is and does it justify doing them now? I want to see what the lowest effort, highest impact combination is. So that would just apply to pretty much anything, uh, but you you're more catering it to the real estate, correct? Uh, yes, my clients are real estate agents, realtors, uh, brokers. And for the most part, they have come to one of two forks in the road that they have done really well. They are successful agents and they're looking to kind of take that next step. Do I want to bring on other partners? How do I get my business to the, to the next level? I've consistently done well. I'm just not sure what to do next. Or they have had mixed results recently that they have had good years. They've had bad years. I don't, I don't, I can't tell you what the return on my time, my money is. I, I'm just, I go, I do my job. I think I'm doing well. Some years I do well, some years I don't. So that's, that's generally who I work with. Okay. So it's the ones that they're not like needing a coach to get them up to like the entrepreneur. They're already there, but it's like they're, they're chest deep in this and they're like, why? Like, then they call you like what I do wrong kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even do wrong. It's, it's, there's, one of the th- one of our first uh, things that we do is we kind of put their activities and their results into two buckets. It's what's what's working really well for you right now. What where are your where are your best results? Okay, let's start there and see what we can make more efficient in that bucket. You know, you're doing this well. We're not going to focus on uh, you know on on the steps to get you there. You're already doing it well. So how can we make that more efficient? Then we'll look at the things that that are not getting the results they hope for. They're not working well. 
Let me see, how can we get that to effective? Is that something that uh, more time on work or maybe less time? Should that be automated? Should that be delegated out? Should you hire you know, somebody to assist you with that? Is that something you should get off your plate? Uh, so that's that's kind of the two areas that you can quickly see with somebody who is uh, working well in, in, in real estate is, hey, these things are working great. Let's make it more efficient. These things aren't working as well. Let's figure out why and let's make let's get them effective one way or another. So then how would you measure your efficiency? Because maybe what you perceive as inefficient is very efficient to me kind of thing. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think we would need to have a conversation as to why why you consider it efficient because efficiency for the most part is objective. You know, there are, you know, subjectively you can say uh, using, using time as the example that if the output requires six hours and you say that's, that's efficient and we look at it and say, well, you know, it does take uh, six hours to have this product level. Maybe that's efficient, but then we start looking deeper and the way to kind of think about it is if you're putting something together and, you know, it takes you six hours to get it, 100% or let's say 99% correct. And in 30 minutes, you'd get it 97% correct. Is it really worth putting that extra five and a half hours in for that such a minimal increase? So thinking about, well, I can get this percentage of results in this amount of time. Is it worth putting the additional time for such such a little increase in, in, in the results? Um, so there, there are ways to, to, to look at it, uh, time, money, energy-wise, to make sure that it is the best use of, of what you're doing. So you want a bigger picture of how you're spending, how you're spending your time and, and what you're doing. But fairly uh, um, efficiency is fairly objective for the most part when you start tracking things, looking at numbers, uh, time, money, and things like that. Yeah, that, that's the biggest one is uh, the, the tracking of time. Because... Um, like you were saying, maybe that five and a half hour, um, maybe the customer was willing to pay a little extra kind of thing. So it is worth your time and it's more efficient to slow down for that customer. Exactly. And that's, and that's, that's an excellent point that you want to make sure that the time that you're putting in, that that's what the client wants. You know, you might spend that extra five and a half hours and the client saying, you know, I don't want any of this. So the whole six hours was a waste versus, you know, just the, uh, you know, the 30 minutes that we thought was good enough. It's like, they didn't want any of the product that you put together. So being able to ask your client, have them tell you what they're looking for and what kind of experience they expect uh, is, is the first piece. So you can, you know, forget, you can be efficient in something that's useless to your client, but you want something that uh, ultimately is going to benefit them and meets up with what they're looking for. Yeah. It's it's the uh, old saying, you can build the product, but if there's no market, it's no use. Exactly. You always have to keep in mind who the end user is and what their expectations, what their what their wants are. So then um, we kind of just like glanced over it um, and just went right into the real estate and your attorney and broker stuff. Um, can you tell us a little about uh, your area and maybe a little bit of your background too? Like your, your childhood without like giving everything away? Sure. Um, I'm here on Cape Cod. It's Massachusetts, um, about an hour south of Boston on a, a good traffic day. It's I grew up in Massachusetts, so I've spent a lot of my life here in New England. Mm-hmm. I am uh, went to school at Syracuse University and went to Suffolk Law in Boston. I've got a uh, lovely wife, two little boys. We are expe- uh, expecting our third child next month, so we've got Congratulations. A, uh, a full house. Thank you. Um, and you know, personally with, I spend time with my family and, uh, pretty, 
you know, pretty occupied with work as well. So real estate is a lot of, of what I do on a day-to-day. The other benefit of being uh, you know, in residential real estate is it something that touches all of our lives. We all have a, a place to live or have some sort of investment, whether you know it's ownership or just a place that we're renting. Um, so in my personal life, I get questions every day about this, this happened at my house, or this is going on in my neighborhood. Should I move here? Should I, uh, you know, should I start saving for this? Or what do you think about this? So uh, I, I do get to see real estate a lot in my personal life and it, it opens the door for a lot of conversation. So it's, it's something that, uh, you know, is, has real life benefits because we all, we all do need that place to live. So that's, that there's the kind of marriage of the two. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so I would assume being a speculative person on the outside, your business has really picked up with uh, everyone trying to move and stuff, right? The uh, kind of boom in real estate here has been twofold. One, there are people moving to to the Cape from cities, from places that they no longer need to be near for work with the ability to be to be virtual. We've seen a large um, a, a large spike in buyers from that. We've also seen just kind of equally of interesting to me, or equally of interest, is that a lot of renters have um, looked to move here uh, because of the price point that's available on Cape Cod, the current interest rates that they can uh, lock in a, a low, lower uh, financing for properties, and they are buying. With, sounds backwards, but they're buying their second home first. So they're buying a property that they might vacation in or they might use as investment while they still rent in the city or have a rental. So you might say, all right, I'm going to keep renting in Boston, but I can now afford a property in, uh, you know, on the Cape and use, use it for a couple of weeks in the summer and rent it out the rest of the time, or uh, I'll be there until I need to get back into Boston full time. So we'll see that. And that's what's that's what's really spiked here and uh, in a lot of the uh, similar communities across the country. That's interesting. I'd never thought they would buy their second home first. That is, that's a very, it's something you would definitely know. And I wouldn't. It's just, again, goes back to the first thing that we talked about, understanding your market, understanding that real estate is hyper-local, what's going on, what makes sense for people buying or selling here. And you know, who, 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 who makes up the, the, the homeowners in the residential market. And um, you know, there's a lot of, of beaches here. There's a lot of lakes and things like that. So there's, we have a very high tourist population. So it makes sense that if, you know, you want to get in because of the interest rates and, you know, you're not paying as much in rent, why not buy that investment property? The the home values are something that have increased and forecast show will continue to increase. So it's a, it's a good investment. It's a good way to get into the, uh, get into home ownership. Yeah. That's the one thing about property. There's only so much land and there's plenty of people. It's a, a very obvious slide supply demand matrix uh, shift where there's more demand for land than less supply. And you, so your property will always increase every year in value. Yeah. They're not making any, any more land. So, you know, that there's a fixed supply. And as you said, if there's more demand, there's the, you know, the supply cannot meet that demand and prices will increase. Um, over the long run. Yes. Over the long run. Cause there could be heaven forbid an air crash in like five, seven years. And then it's like, well, shoot, I was stuck with this, whatever percent. Now I, how, what do we do? But yeah, real estate's the long game. Would you say it's more of the 10 to 20 year play or the 20 plus? 
I, I think it really depends. Um, it doesn't need to even be the full 10 years. Um, and I was talking earlier today with a uh, financial advisor that I work with just that, um, you know, what if, you know, I'm a homeowner, this is my primary residence. I, I don't look at it as an investment, but my home will never be worth more than it is today based on the market. What should I do? Is there a way to uh, kind of leverage that? You know, I've only been here, let's say two years. So I'm never going to see a greater return. This this might be the top of, of certain markets. So being able to identify situations, both where you currently are and then what your alternative, it go, you know, it all goes back to, as we said, leverage. What is your leverage? So I might be able to sell my house right now for more than it's going to be, was worth when I bought it, worth than it'll be in five, six years. But if I have to go turn around and buy a house in this market, I'm just giving away any kind of premium that that I got for selling my house. So is that does that make sense? No. Um, so I can hold it for you know seven, 10, 20 years, and I will see some sort of increase. But just being able to take a snapshot and understand the market at any one time is of equal importance. So being flexible is the most important part of real estate. You usually don't uh, maximize your returns when you have to sell. When you must do something, that's usually when you are looking at uh, very low or lower profits or even a loss because I must sell my house because I need to pay for X or I must sell my house because I'm moving for a job and I have no no options or no no other alternatives out there. So being able to provide alternatives is of equal importance as opposed to, I'm gonna just hold this, You know, in 20 years, there's no, nothing that's gonna guarantee that your house is gonna be increased by X. Right, but that's only just the value of the house. You, like, if you look at it as a uh, the real estate investing of it all, you you get a client, and if you're you're living in the house and you have a three bedroom house, you're running out two of them, kind of thing. Which then, on top of whatever the value of your house is, and because if you take the legal structure, you can put your house in to an LLC and write off everything. So it's like you said, it is just the house alone. You're, you're not really going to make money, but if you incorporate multiple streams. Then it becomes very valuable and a good cash flow. Yeah, I think that's that's a good lesson for almost anything. Having um, multiple options, having multiple income streams in that example is useful. But then also considering that there's additional risk, additional costs. When you have tenants, that there's the risk of not collecting this month's rent, or that when something breaks, that there's going to need to be repairs, or that there's over those 20 years, there's property maintenance as well. You know, there there is cost to it. Um, one one thing that uh, we'll see sometimes with investment is that not the complete lack of awareness, but the just underestimating how much it costs to properly maintain a property and, and what the risks are. That you just uh, when you're kind of doing your performa, that you're saying, okay, you know rent is X, this is what I'm going to get for this many months. It's like, well, have you considered what if you don't have a tenant that month? Or what if the tenant can't pay? What if, you know, what if you need to, God forbid, evict a tenant? Or what if, you know, there's uh, the situation where there's property costs, how are you going to pay for that? Or how, what are your considerations? It's like, well, I really haven't thought of it. I, I was going to close on March 15th and April 1st, I was going to have a tenant. And I had that, I had that money spent before, you know, it's, it's even identified. So there are cost considerations to always think about. Uh, whether it's you know your primary residence or investment property, but would you also say in general investment or resident like you're just uh, would a property manager be a very smart investment, but also purchase to help maintain those those headaches that come up? It can be. It depends on on the property owner. Um, some property owners have 
experience and, and all of those things. And that's where their skill set is. The, the best thing you can do is know what you're good at and do those things, know what you have time for and uh, allocate your time and then know what you're not good at, know what you don't have time for, and then bring in help. Uh, so for someone like me who can fix nothing, having a property manager is of utmost importance uh, because there's very few things that I can do that, uh, you know, if something breaks that I, I can do on my own. So I know that. So I need to bring in experts in that field to help me. Um, kind of going back to the efficiency talk, I can do it. You know, it's something I might be able to do, but it might take me 10 hours when somebody who knows they're doing could do it in less than an hour. So that that's just maximizing what you can do well. Yeah, especially like you said, the the efficiency, it, it's headaches, but also just time. It's cheaper to pay someone whatever their rate is and then give them their money for their supplies than to figure it out yourself. And like you said, you could 10, 12 hours for a simple two-hour project kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, at first this kind of, was a new idea to me when I had heard that, you know, uh, I was listening to a podcast and the uh, podcaster was talking about how he got all nominal tasks off his plate so he could focus on his newest business venture. Somebody would come in, clean his house, would cut his, cut his lawn, would take care of his laundry. And I was like, you know, th those are easy things. I can do those. Why would I want to pay somebody to do that? And then when you look at it for what you pay for those services, if your business is bringing in three, five, 10 times what you're paying to get that done, and you want to spend the additional that time doing working on your business? Why not? It makes financial sense. So kind of just looking at things that way. That's interesting. I think yeah, I I used to when I was younger do the mowing. And, uh, there were certain clients I just I knew um, being wealthier and smarter, I could charge them a little more. But they even told me they're like, you do it so much faster and quicker than I ever could. They're like, it just it's cheaper to pay you the flat hundred bucks for the month than let's figure it out. Yeah, it's both the cheaper piece as well as, you know, let's say it takes you one hour at $100. I can spend an additional hour with the client and I bill my client at $800 an hour. So mm -hmm. it does not make sense for me to spend that hour cutting my lawn when I can 8x doing what I do in my business. Um, so, I, you know, just identifying things like that, just when we say better use of time, that's that's kind of the example. Yeah, it was something I heard. I might be saying the paraphrase wrong words. Um, Money is not time. It's like money is just a transference of stress kind of thing. And if you make more money, you can alleviate some of your stresses. You can be. And um, I'm not familiar exactly with. I know. I think quote. I completely butchered that whole thing. No, but I, I understand what the, the perspective is. And I think the time is the big one because you can always make more money. You can, you know, money is something that that that's that's a variable that you can increase decrease that can change time on the other hand you you are working with a fixed set of time so being most efficient and maximizing how you spend the time is always gonna is always going to be useful because you, you can't there's no way to invest in time make more of it there's no way to you know double your time necessarily you know time is fixed whereas money there there's ways around money time is time is time yeah they, it's some Again, it might be butchering the paraphrase, but it's something like it's easy to find a hundred bucks, but it's hard to get that time back. Kind yes. of thing. I would agree. Yes, I agree with that. Um, I love it. I'd like to cut it there, Mike. Um, can I I want to ask you a few going out questions? Um, so during this COVID times, um, in your free time when you're not working on your real estate or your properties, what do you do to entertain yourself? Is it Netflix, Amazon Prime, different podcasts, et cetera? Yeah. Um 
I do spend a lot of time with my kids when I can. So playing with them is entertaining because they are four and two years old. They're two boys and they, they love to, uh, kind of turn anything into a, a little wrestling match. So uh, they keep me on my toes and uh, they, uh, they keep me smiling, even if they, uh, you know, have way more energy than I do. Uh, but just like everyone else, I do like Netflix. I listen to way too many podcasts, especially, uh, you know, sports. So I, I will go and kind of that, you know, do that for uh, personal enjoyment and, and relaxation. Uh, like to be outside as much as possible, whether it's, uh, you know, exercising or just kind of being at the beach. So those are the things that I, I do for fun. So what are the sports podcasts that you go into uh, on? Uh, I follow the, the NBA pretty closely, but um, pretty much anything that the, uh, the ringer puts out, I listen to, and I religiously listen to pardon the interruption every day. So when, when somebody's like, you know, you can, you don't have to watch it. You can just listen to the podcast. Like, that's great. I can't sit in front of a TV for half an hour, but I can listen to it at, you know, 1.5 speed in 20 minutes. This is fantastic. So <laughs> that, that I do listen to every day. That's, that's funny. And the 1.5, that's a recent one I've been doing. I listen to longer lectures from uh, like money managers, but they pause and they're like, and then it's like, come on, just 1.5 faster, faster. Yeah, it's it's life-changing. I'm up to 1.8 as far as speed for most things that I can and still get most of it. So I do listen to, I listen to books too, uh, as opposed to, to reading that, I, that I'm just a, a painfully slow reader, especially for a lawyer, but uh, I do listen to books and podcasts at 1.8 speed. I'm, I feel like I'm getting most of it. Uh, my brother-in-law recommended uh, a Tim Ferriss podcast. He's like, you know, check this out. And he sent it over and it was three hours and 43 minutes. And my first thought was, there's no chance I'm going to listen to a four-hour podcast. <laughs> but at 1.8 speed, it, I did it. And it was, I mean, it was, of course, it was him. It was super interesting. Uh, but if it wasn't at double speed, I don't think I could have done it. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, I would say anything higher than 1.7 for me, it just starts like chipmunks are squirking everywhere. I don't even well, if know. You go, yeah. If, if you go back and start listening at regular speed, it almost sounds like it's, it's distorted. It's like, this is not what, what that I thought this person sounded like anymore. <laughs> so that is not what I envisioned their voice would be actually. Um, other than that, uh, what are some tips um, and advice you would give to a young entrepreneur trying to get into real, uh, real estate? Yeah, um, it kind of depends on what you're looking to do, because the beautiful thing about real estate, and we've kind of touched upon it a few different times today, is that it 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 touches everyone's life. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll meet young people who say, well, I want to invest in real estate. It's like, okay, well, um, you know, start off, do you own your home? No. Well, have you considered buying a primary residence? Yeah, but I want to invest in real estate. Well, that that's an investment. Every month you're writing a check for your rent, you know, if you can turn that into a mortgage, you can turn that into an investment property where you're using your example, you've got multiple bedrooms, you can rent those out. You can rent it, rent it out to a short-term rental. There's there's options there. So just getting started as far as property ownership is probably the most important piece. And whether that's investing in REITs, um, coming together with friends and family to, to group purchase, that can be something. Uh, for those interested in buy, you know, helping others buy, sell real estate, Again, that local knowledge is really important. And my philosophy is a little different than others is I take a, and this is, you know, coming back from being a lawyer, I take a project management approach to buying and selling real estate, understanding what's your objective, how can I get you there from beginning to end, what's, what works best for you? Um, you know, 
you can take a sale, a more sales approach of, I need to sell this house or I need to find this buyer home today. Um, but I, I look at it as kind of a project and it helps me because it helps me understand who I'm working with, what their objectives are, how can I meet those? Absolutely. Yeah. Like uh, one of the other guys I had on uh, a while ago, he said, it's the real escape game. You can skin the cat a million different ways and there's still more to do it. He's like, just pick one and learn that the best. Yeah. And that's, that's good advice. And it's also pick the one that comes most easily or most natural to you. And again, that sounds pretty common or basic, but there's a lot of people that I, that I'll meet. They're trying to do things that are not in their skill set, or they're trying to uh, kind of be a different persona than, than, than they are. And it's just, that's, that's, that's a real job in and of itself. So it's, yeah. it's a lot easier to figure out what works and what you want to do. Uh, and that's the other, and there's a lot of benefits of real estate. There's a lot of things you can do in it. Uh, you know, we talked about property management, uh, you know, commercial side, there's, there's endless things you can do. So the other thing to think of is you will, the good thing about it, it's like the ocean. It will never stop. There's no end. You can always learn something more. It's, you can't, you're not going to come to an end and say, all right, I know everything there is about real estate. I'm done. It's like, no, there's going to be something new tomorrow for you to uncover. And that'll never, never stop. Right. Yeah. It's the never, it's the, the student like mine to always take it and keep going. Um, the, so what are some of the links they can get you at um, contact you? Let's say someone's like, Oh, I, I live near that area. I'm going to, I'm going to give Mike a call kind of thing. Yeah. The two best places to find me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm Mike Salitro and uh, accomplished re.com has uh, all my contacts. Wonderful. And then I'll uh, get that stuff in the description later on. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. I appreciate you too. Um, stay safe and stay well, Mike. You too. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Well, congratulations. You made it to the end. You're an awesome person. Not many make it here. So being the awesome person that you are, can you do me one more awesome favor? Can you rate and review this on whatever podcast uh, services you're using? Um, app, if you do it on Apple... Uh, and you leave an actual written review, um, I have a thing on my website, I will take your written review and post it for all to see. Congratulations, you're permanently sealed on my site. Otherwise, um, I am trying to do YouTube more and live streaming. Um, I will try to put as many of the YouTube links in the description of the show as I can. So give your boy uh, some extra help over on um, YouTube. Watch my videos. And we, I just mute it and change the channel. <laughs> change the the window or something but yeah um that's it thank you for being awesome and see you next time